0: Welcome to Voices of E-Learning, reflecting the people living and breathing the future of education and
1: online learning with your host, J.W. Marshall. Hello and welcome everyone to today's podcast. My name is J.W. Marshall, Learning Solutions Director at MarketScale. And with us today, we've got Harris Bidman, Senior Vice President of Corporate Development and Strategy at Achieve 3000. And today is going to be a great podcast where we're gonna go through a number of different ed tech topics. Um, so to start off, I'm gonna go ahead and let Harris introduce himself and tell us a little bit more about your background.
0: Hey, thanks, JW, uh, for having me. It's a, it's a pleasure to be with you and you know it's always good to reconnect with old friends. I think we started our rodeo ooh, probably six, seven years ago uh, when I had sold uh, my first company, Late Night Labs, to Macmillan Publishing. We started working together at that organization. Uh, So I've been involved in ed tech, if you will, in the education space for about 10 years now. Uh, Started our first company in 2010, uh, focused on higher education and supporting STEM education for uh, all forms of remote, hybrid, and in-lecture learning experiences. And since then have been focused across K through 20 and even adult ed, uh, across a broad range of challenges from science education through literacy and foundational literacy and math. So, uh, currently I'm the senior vice president of corporate development and strategy at achie 3000, which is a 20 year old education software provider, primarily focused in the U S on K through 12 literacy. And in that function, I support M&A partnerships, customer support, data interoperability, and our international sales efforts. So I have a, a unique opportunity to sit pretty broadly across the organization and see a
1: lot. That's amazing. And there's so many topics just from that introduction that I wanna get into. Um, I think the first one that I wanna dive into is uh, the data interoperability. Um, that seems like one that doesn't get talked about a whole lot. Um, And I know you've got um, uh, maybe a unique take on that and maybe not, but um, let us know a little bit more about your experience with that and kind of your your vision for that moving forward.
0: Yeah. So, you know, working in the K-12 landscape with a formative assessment company that's focusing on student growth and in general, working with a number of ed tech providers, there's a lot of data being generated by teachers and students. And I'd say the first most important thing is securing that information and keeping it private, and keeping it away from anybody that shouldn't be uh, reviewing and seeing that type of information. So privacy is the first wrapper that's the most critical. But once you solve and you focus on privacy like COPPA and FERPA compliance, um, you, you really wanna think about data interoperability and how can the kind of pieces of information we have on a student support a teacher and a district, an educator, a parent, and a student, how can we provide a, a larger kind of 360 view of who that student is, where they've been, where they're going? And and that's going to come from being able to connect uh what's typically disparate pieces of information coming from multiple, let's call it, you know, products, uh and and syncing them together uh or allowing them to sync together where historically they haven't been you know, interoperable with each other. And so one of the things that I try to focus on um, at Achie 3000 and then more broadly in general with uh, mentorship and work I do across the edtech landscape with other companies is try to promote open architecture. So working with organizations like IMS Global to help support initiatives around, you know, API driven protocols to support uh, the Appropriate sharing of student information across different, you know, uh, products in order to really better serve teachers and and students and parents.
1: That's great, and uh, I know we've made it how many minutes without talking about COVID nineteen, uh, but I'm going to go ahead and break <laughs> the ice with it. Um, in relation to this data, um, two questions: One, have you seen, uh, as many other industries, uh, some increased uh, worries about? privacy and data security and how are those being addressed? And then two, have you seen more uh, interoperability, more companies willing to share data and work together in these uh, very uh, difficult and uncertain times?
0: Yeah, it's a great question. And I think our industry, like many, have seen an acceleration of change in order to meet the needs of our customers because these are such different and unusual times we're living in. And so, as students are at home trying to learn and trying to you know advance their their knowledge, um, we've found that authenticity of student work is is something that we need to be aware of. So how do we ensure that this is the student? If it says Jamie, how do we know that this is Jamie actually doing the work? How do we ensure that there are proper protocols in place, whether it's randomization of questions in item banks, whether it's lockdown browsers, all those types of things that you wanna be thinking about to ensure that it is this student. And then how do you just create a culture around authenticity and kind of anti-cheating methodologies? Uh, So that's something that we think about and that we put a lot of, I'd say technology resources and, and thought and pedagogy behind. In terms of interoperability with other systems, you know, absolutely. Um, More and more, we can't see ourselves as an island. We have to think ourselves as a much broader experience that connects with other systems. So whether that's companies like Google Classroom or other learning management systems like Canvas um, and integrating more smoothly because a student doesn't necessarily, especially a younger student, doesn't necessarily have the skills to know how to navigate all those different applications and the smoother the transition between different applications, whether you're doing a math product to a reading product to a writing product and so on, or just doing your homework, if they're all in different products and platforms, that can be really challenging for students. So single sign-on and and one-stop shop, if you will, in terms of uh, seamless integrations is really important, and it's really the, the right thing to do, especially for younger students, because they don't necessarily have a facilitator let alone a teacher looking over their shoulder ensuring that they're clicking and going to the right places at the right time and that adds even further to frustration for a teacher if they're on a say you know a zoom session or google hangouts how do they ensure that uh, the students are in the right platform at the right time and so improving visibility into where students are online and what they're doing is also really important
1: yeah that, that makes sense um, that kind of leads into a broader question uh, because I'm sure that's one of the biggest challenges uh, facing ed tech and education today. Uh, what are some of the other current challenges in the uh, the environment that we see ourselves in in uh, the the coronavirus pandemic uh, new normal that we're uh, trying to navigate? What are the other big challenges that you see in the industry right now?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think you know one of the things that you know is, is something that we we all need to think about is the social and emotional welfare of our students, right? The lack of just regular play, right? We know how important play is to a child's development and their social, you know, framework and fabric um, and and collaborating with friends. And so moving from just the playground to collaboration and project-based learning, all these pieces are, are, are struggles now to deliver uh, to a student, to get them, you know, to where they were before. And we have to be thinking about all those impacts on a child and whether we can augment them or think about something new uh, that can still support that type, that part of the child's development. Those are all things we need to be thinking about together uh, as a broader community. Um, it's really important that we, you know, it's not just about academic gains. It's about the total child's development.
1: Absolutely. and. Something we've talked a fairly good amount on our podcast recently has been the increased role of parents in the education process. Another unprecedented new development uh, is that parents have been forced to be much more involved, um, some more willing than others. Um, what has been your experience uh, as far as helping facilitate that um, parent involvement in a brand new way?
0: Yeah, it's It's been really interesting. I think most parents can now say they have a newfound respect for teachers, understanding how hard a teacher's job is. And we're not really teaching. We're facilitating. Most parents. You know, I joke with a lot of friends. You know, after probably about seventh or eighth grade, the work just becomes too hard for most, most parents, right? We we kind of tap out at that level of math, <laughs> right? When we get to like calculus, we're kind of uh, we're kind of done at that point, unless we've worked that muscle more recently. And so, we either find ourselves on Khan Academy brushing up on some basic foundational math skills, or or we're really relying on uh, the software. Uh, and the teachers to help support us, uh, and I think some teachers are doing an amazing job at engaging students and supporting parents. But it, it's challenging. And as a parent of four children across uh, fifth grade, uh, second grade, and and you know early early childhood, three year old, it's a you know it's a challenge to uh, differentiate your own facilitation and instruction across all these different age groups and learner types. Uh, and it's challenging, it's hard. It's, uh, it can be frustrating. And you know the last thing you want is the software to have a glitch and to have a problem because there's so much pressure to do the right thing for your kids to ensure that they're growing and that they're developing and and that they're not anxious, right? You know, there are elements of anxiety that can exist even in the home where it is a safe environment, hopefully, right? and where it is an environment of love. should be an environment of safety and love in school as well. But, you know, I'm I'm talking about my own experience. I hope my you know, my home is a, a, a very comfortable place for my kids where all their needs are met. And in that environment, it still can be anxiety provoking, not knowing where to go, where to click, what work they did or didn't do. And so, you know, from the vendor perspective, we need to make our software more available and easier to access for the parents as well. Because like you said, they are more and more, and the research has shown this for years, the more involved the family is in the child's education, the better off that child will be. And even more so today, when parents uh, have to step up uh, with a greater degree of engagement with their child's learning. So the better uh, our industry can get at, kind of putting a window into where the child is for the parent and letting them come in to support them and partner with educators in a real way. I think, you know, the stronger those outcomes will be for those children.
1: Absolutely. And hopefully there are some long lasting uh, new ways of doing education that come out of this pandemic where we see more parent involvement even beyond the immediate where They have kind of being forced to be involved uh, and that that level of understanding of teachers and their struggles. Um, As you said, teachers struggle with the technology is great when it works, but when it doesn't, it's really frustrating. I think parents are understanding that even more so today than ever as well. Um, And this is really tough because it's not even a standard normal home environment, right? Students, kids are um, dealing with not being able to go out and do the things that they did before. Uh, as well. So, it's really difficult. Um, speaking of adult learning and parents having to learn calculus again, um, I know you have some other experiences with adult learning. How are you seeing that shifting in, during this time?
0: Yeah. So, I mean, we can categorize, I think about adult learning as there's like foundational adult learning. So, for for parents that, let's say, are in English, you know, English as an additional language, right? And they want to learn English, their software. And a focus to kind of retool and, and upskill them uh, to whether it's learn English, learn new skills in their different categories or upskill. Um, and I think, you know, now is an opportunity uh, for, for certain folks to reevaluate, you know, what are those career pathways? There's a lot of new emerging fields that are coming. So, for instance, cybersecurity. Right, the the rise of the kind of dev boot camp, you know. Whereas before, there was this big push into technical and career development, which I still believe strongly in, especially through community colleges uh, to retool and upskill uh, workers. Uh, I see a, a, one of the more interesting fields in that specific area is actually in cybersecurity and defense. Uh, what's interesting is if you look at a typical IT job, you know. You can do a a boot camp for that or do an associate's degree. And you could come out making around $50,000 a year. If you would pivot that just a little bit and focused on the entry-level cybersecurity person, which is not a necessarily highly technical skilled uh, laborer, you can actually get closer to a $70,000 starting salary. And the demand is is far outstripping the supply. And more and more, especially, you know, in context of, say, you know, more families being online, more learning, more of our environments being uh, web-based experiences and technologies, you know, um, kind of osmosis through all ecosystems, more and more the security components of, of our experiences and the privacy through security are, are increasingly demanding.
1: Yeah. And it seems like there's an increased trend towards micro-credentialing. If you maybe want to explain to the audience what that is and your take on, is that something uh, I know we're seeing across the board, a lot of uh, adult learning, um, just uh, folks going out on their own and looking for you know online learning opportunities, whether free or paid. Um, obviously, we'll probably see a big trend towards um, people going back and getting more uh, formal education, probably online in the short term. But um, what's your take on that shift, uh, and is that a good thing? Yeah,
0: I think it's fascinating, you know, the idea of the uncollege, right, or the democratization of of deeper knowledge and information, right. It's so like, what's the value of an introductory college course, right, and it, you know, in a big lecture hall experience? Uh, I would say that there is value in it that you have faculty that can engage with you and um Inspire you to go deeper into a topic, and that act as a resource and a facilitator to help guide you in that journey. Um, if you don't have that, I would say I would struggle beyond the social component of being on college and being exposed to new ideas, new people. Um, you can, I mean, you know, there's those T-shirts that say, "Everything I learned, I learned on YouTube." Uh, You can learn a lot on YouTube. I've learned to build. I've learned to solder. I've learned to do a lot of things uh, on resources like YouTube. Uh, We can go to, you know, if we want to get more highly technical, we can sign up for Pluralsight. We can go to Lynda on LinkedIn. There are Udemy. There are Coursera. There are all these opportunities out there to get really deep, not just shallow level learning, but deep level learning on specific topics Uh, that more and more of those opportunities are available. And I think it makes us rethink the value of paying for certain degrees, right? If I'm going to be online this semester at New York university, paying upwards of $70,000 in tuition and fees, is that worth it? Right. And what am I getting from that kind of total experience And so, you know, folks would argue, well, that degree is worth something for the long term because a New York University degree is a respectable degree that you could take with you to other employers. But what we're seeing is a shift in some of the big, you know, as we call the FANG stocks, the Facebooks, the Amazons and so on, where they're not requiring, at least for engineering, they're not requiring necessarily that you have a college degree. Now, I would say I would argue that if you look at upward mobility for an engineer, one of the driving forces behind upward mobility for an engineer is their ability to effectively communicate. And if you can't communicate via email and writing and, you know, PowerPoints and, and drafting large documents or being able to give a a, a presentation orally, you're going to struggle to grow in any organization if you lack the communication skills. And you can work on those communication skills in a university environment and harness and tap into those skills. Uh, So I would say college still has a certain edge. The question is how much value does it have and how do you price to that value in terms of costs and tuition?
1: And how do you line that up with your goals for your career, for your learning experience? Uh, I think we're definitely seeing that shift. And and unfortunately, I think we're seeing, I think, 75% of employers don't even feel like college graduates have all the tools that they need to succeed in the workplace as well. So I think there is some retooling going on at the higher ed level, especially uh, during this pandemic, and uh, that's something that hopefully will have uh, a lasting, you know, effect and improve those yeah. outcomes of those students.
0: There's really a skills gap, right, between what college, what some traditional universities are preparing our students for, and the colleges and universities might argue that that's not their job, right. And a university might say, "Listen, it's not our job to teach this student how to effectively use Excel." Um, they just might say, "That's not our job. That's an employer's job." And the employer is saying they're not coming in with the right skills. You know, university might say we focus on research and how to conduct effective research, and the employer might say, "Okay." But the research you're teaching them isn't effective in the job marketplace. So there is a disconnect in some areas and there's that kind of dichotomy between is the purpose of a university and college to land a job or is the purpose of a university to create a well-rounded, responsible citizen of the world? And I think that's where there's this uh, misalignment of expectations on both sides. And I think where you're seeing success, though, is in a lot of the community colleges where they are focused on technical and career development, where they say this is the purpose of the degree, right? This is the purpose of our associate's degree in chemical engineering or in, um, you know, just uh, basic engineering to work in, you know, the uh, the plant next door that's creating these automobiles and so on.
1: Right, and that seems to be the marriage of the the technical skill and the depth, but also the community, the chance to present you know collaborate that type of thing Uh, and that really is makes it difficult for a higher ed uh, university to be able to treat teach every student every possible skill that they need especially as those are evolving every year Um, and then also kind of lay that foundation of learning how to learn and being a leader and things like that so um, i think what i'm seeing also is a lot of uh, the business community start to partner more with universities on here's what we need. If we could do it, you know, we would do it this way. And and then some, you know, businesses and uh, companies actually starting to do some of their own curriculum and uh, more intensive uh, year two year long uh, development courses and things like that for their employees. So um, it seems like in this pandemic, it's brought the higher ed and the business community together at least a little bit um, to have some of those conversations because, again, we're all having to kind of band together here and break down some of those barriers. Um, Next, I'd like to shift into, I know you've got a lot of experience with startups uh, in ed tech and would really be curious to know what advice would you give to someone who is just starting out or maybe they just started before the pandemic hit um, and how to kind of weather the storm and and potentially even uh, grow even more in these, you know, uncertain times.
0: So, I'm always about the customer when I'm thinking about building a business and it's finding those customers that view what you're doing, the problem that you're solving as an inelastic good. Finding, identifying those customers, partnering with them, respecting them, and then having them help you kind of build out your idea, I think is very valuable. I I would caution that with, you don't wanna lose your vision to their needs. You still wanna maintain what your purpose is and you know, listen to their advice and suggestions very deeply because they are the customer and, and the customer you know will help guide you and promote you, but, but you really need to listen to them. I would also say in these times, you really need to manage your burn rate because we just don't know what kind of funding environments we're gonna be going into over the next six to 12, 18 months. And so whether you've just raised capital, you're trying to raise capital, uh, I would just caution a a very lean operation for now and try to really match that burn rate uh, while you're maintaining that focus on building out the customer's needs and, and try to really do things leanly. One of the things that uh, is so challenging about EdTech specifically is the skills needed to build a successful business at such an early stage of funding and development, right? So what I mean by that is you need some people who are brilliant at product brilliant at academics and pedagogy and teaching and learning brilliant at sales, brilliant at marketing, brilliant at operations and and many other industries. You don't necessarily need that level of depth in terms of, say, the academic side and pedagogy side of teaching and learning. Right. If I'm building a consumer driven uh, tool for social media or for even enterprise SaaS business solutions, Uh, It doesn't mean I need a PhD in teaching and learning to deliver that. Uh, If I want to, though, deliver a product that's focused on teaching science education, well, if I have zero understanding of the world of science, I'm going to be pretty challenged to try to deliver a solution that's going to drive growth and support students and educators. So it's very hard in the ethics space to have all that expertise. But what I would caution folks is you need to be thinking about all those different areas and not just focus on anyone if you have no capacity to do sales and marketing but you've developed a great product who's going to use your product if on the other hand you have no idea about how to build a product that solves the pain points um of what the customers are and you're disconnected from the customers then then you're going to miss your roadmap purpose as well
1: yeah the best sales and marketing isn't going to do you any good either yep absolutely all right shifting into our last topic uh i know you were very big on mentorship um tell us about why um and then how the way some of the ways that that you like to give back um through being a mentor
0: so when i started in education uh i really had a limited background into the world of what education software and teaching and learning was all about and and more than that just about running a business I did not really understand what it meant to run a business. And I had some amazing uh, mentors along the way, folks uh, like Zach Seitlin, Harold Levy, um, and a number of uh, uh, Gary Holloway, number of incredible mentors and leaders, and I'm leaving out several, so I apologize, uh, but who influenced me deeply and how I thought about things and how I thought about the value of a mentor and what it means to have someone looking over your shoulder that you can turn to for advice based on their own experiences and mentoring is not an easy thing because it means it doesn't you're you're not putting yourself first you're actually putting yourself last because it's not about your opinion on them it's about helping them get to their own opinions right because they're the entrepreneur it's their idea and they need to solve for that problem you're not solving for their problem but you're there as a guide and so i learned a lot about mentorship from some of these folks who were investors and in in our first business and maintained a strong relationship with them today or most of them and always appreciated their deep insight passion and support and i try to give that back when i work with uh, other education and software companies to guide them in their own path and support them because you know running a business as a startup It has so many different unique challenges, right? There's so many things of the pressures, the roller coaster. I have a colleague who refers to startups as a roller coaster without a seatbelt. You just hope the velocity keeps you in your seat, right? Right. Uh, (laughs) The dangerous way to live, but that's the truth. And so when you're doing mentorship, you you have to be supportive of those entrepreneurs and empathize with what they're going through. Part of good mentorship is empathy.
1: Yeah, I would imagine a lot of uh, startups, entrepreneurs, uh, no one else can really understand that or advise them. Uh, you know, uh, entrepreneurship professor, if they haven't been an entrepreneur themselves, is, you know, disconnected. So
0: I'm always very skeptical about that, right? Like entrepreneurial courses in college who've been taught by a professor who sat behind a desk, or venture capitalists who've never built a business but think that they know what it is from the other side. Um, I, I think you've had to have been there in, in some level to appreciate the pressures, the anxiety of "Am I going to make payroll this month?" You know, is this competitor going to come at me and undercut me, and I can't fund it? Uh, it it's there's so much uh, uniqueness in that startup world that if you've never been there, uh, it's near impossible to to replicate it without of being having done it.
1: And most entrepreneurs are serial entrepreneurs, so I would even add to look for a mentor that's had more than one experience because uh, experience one and experience two could be nine day different. And so someone that's got, uh, you know, as many different entrepreneurial experiences as possible um, and who's also experienced a failure in entrepreneurship, which is almost inevitable. Uh, Not many entrepreneurs get it right every time. So uh, I would kind of add that piece. Um, that's led me to one more bonus question for everyone, um, kind of jumping uh, from entrepreneurship to just more broadly leadership. Um, what would you say about uh, you know, leaders being more aggressive to take on more responsibility and to grow? Um, what advice would you have just for anyone in leadership that's maybe been where they've been for a while and this pandemic maybe uh, kind of forcing them to out of their comfort zone and to grow, but could you maybe talk about the benefits of that and and kind of your take on that?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, what makes a great leader is really, is a topic that's studied heavily across many industries. One of the things that I always uh, look for to myself and what I always appreciate in rising stars that I work with is uh, a level of execution a focus, a maniacal focus on getting things done, a uh, mentality of growth, and a mentality that is built in optimism. You know, we're always solving problems. That's that's our life, effectively, right? We're solving, we're building solutions, um, we're problem solvers by nature. But how we how we um, approach those problems. What's our mindset when we have those problems? Is it oh another challenge, oh, another problem, another issue, another block, another tackle, or is it a level of excitement and enthusiasm to solve those problems? And you know, as a leader, you need to approach problems—they're inevitable, they exist—but it's how you approach them. It's the attitude you take towards problem solving and elevating those around you to embrace the challenges with an enthusiasm and an optimism. Um, You know, there's reality. It's hard, right? No one's going to tell you that challenges are simple, easy, and fun, but it's the approach that you take is that growth mindset to take on new challenges uh, and explore them in a way of positivity that I think makes great leaders.
1: There you go. And I think you can see that at the individual level and at the the company level. Certain companies are just trying to get by or just trying to make money and others really care about the greater good, the the cause that they've you know started, and um, they've got that optimism, that you know grit, that problem-solving, uh, you know, uh, philosophy that is driving their business. And uh, as uh, consumers of K-12 uh, ed tech companies, I think that it shines through pretty, pretty clearly a lot of times with this company, is, you know, really cares and has really got this you know right mindset to grow with us and uh, this other company maybe you know doesn't. So um, I think that's a great way to wrap up for today. Uh, Harris, it's been uh, great reconnecting and catching up, and this will hopefully be the first of many times we have you on the show. Um, listeners, uh, send us your questions, uh, reply to the blog post uh, for this podcast, and we would love to hear more from you, and I'm sure Harris would be happy to answer your questions. Uh, so thanks again for joining us, And. We'll see you on the next episode.
0: Thanks, Dave. It's a pleasure to be with you.